Welcome into the best in true crime talk radio. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Got the distinct pleasure of having an old friend with us again yet today. Uh, we're talking about, I guess you could say serial killers. This is a distinct serial killer in uh, in a different kind of way. I want to bring in our, our author friend and we'll, we'll talk about it and describe exactly what's going on with this particular uh, book today. It's a different book and a different a different take. Actually, it's disturbing. It has to do with a landscaper and the desecration of bodies. It has to do with the homosexual community. And so we're going to talk about that today. Eleanor Warren is a best-selling author, the producer and lead host of the popular NBC radio show House of Mystery and Inside Writing, both heard on the 106.5 FM Los Angeles and 102.3 FM Riverside, 1050 AM Palm Springs and 540 AM KYAH Salt Lake City and 1150 AM KKNW Seattle, Tacoma and Phoenix radio bands. His best-selling true crime books in Canada include Beyond Suspicion, The True Story of Colonel Russell Williams, was featured on CNN's Lies, Crimes, and Video, Season 4, and Murder Time 6, The True Story of the Wells Gray Park Murders. Here in America, his bestsellers include The Killing Game, Serial Killer Rodney Akala, uh, which was featured on several television shows, such as Very Scary People with Donnie Wahlberg, Oxygen's Mark of a Killer, Reels Killer Trophies, and included in a four-part Sundance Channel documentary called Death's Date, his bestseller Doomsday Cults, The Devil's Hostages, is featured on Vice's Dark Side of the 90s. And anytime I miss Alan, I just turn it to Vice and I see him all the time on Dark Side of the 90s. Uh, his latest series, Killer Queens, is a six-part book series covering murders that affect the gay community. So far, it includes book one, Leopold and Loeb, book two, Butcher of Hanover, Fritz Harmon, and book three, Grinder Serial Killer, Stephen Port. And book four, the one we're talking about tonight, Bruce MacArthur, Toronto Gay Killer. Let's bring on, uh, once again, Alan R. Warren. Alan, how you doing? I'm tired now after that. Oh, yeah, after that, you, you're exhausted, you need a nap? Yeah, that would. I'm busy, aren't I? You I, are. Boy, any, I need to take a break. Anytime I miss you, Alan, I just... Tune in device and I say, There he is, there's Alan, and I wave at the screen. I'm like, Hi Alan. Yeah, they could they could actually um just use my cover if calling it Dark Side of the Nineties, that's perfect. Just use my face. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> I just uh lately you're you're all over Vice TV. they've they've been uh playing the heck out of uh, the Dark Side uh, series lately. So um Yeah, I know. Yeah. I wish I wished I got a commission for that. I was gonna say, do you get residuals on that deal? No, I wish I did because that's <laughs> one that's, and I see that everywhere. It's on friendly TV. It's on, they've got that, they've marketed that like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. I see, it's crazy. I uh, see my face every time, you know, I, yeah. just, I can't stand it. Oh, no, you shouldn't say that. I mean, it's, it's, it's lovely to see your face all the time. I just, you know, I, anytime no, no, I go too, sh too shiny of a forehead. Nah, come time. on. <laughs> just next next time you do anything for uh, Vice, just tell them you want a little extra powder right there, right in the middle. They just, did that on the Prime one that you mentioned, that four-part one, The Dating Death. Yeah. They actually stopped in the middle of taping in the very first day. And uh, they said they had to powder, 
give me some a little makeup. I said, okay, sure. And then they were over there doing this, and I could see the director uh, pointing to the top of his head to the girls. <laughs> <laughs> and so they had to powder my head because it was too shiny. They had to do that with me with Paranormal Night Shift, too. They did it a couple times. Oh, yeah. see? Yeah. yeah. Powder the old dome a couple times. And I, yeah. I, I apologize for being so shiny. I just, I'd never had that happen. <laughs> so now I'm all paranoid and, uh, no, no, don't be, don't be. It's just, uh, just part of the game that happens. I, well, you get under those lights and that, that happens too. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause they have that light. They put a light over your, all the people's heads, uh, cause it shines your face off. Right. And yes. And I don't know, but yeah, I'd rather be in a dark room. <laughs> right. Well, it is dark initially when you're in there. I mean, we're given a little inside baseball when it comes to TV, but, you know, they sit you down in that chair and then you go to, to do your, your, your sit downs or stand ups or whatever it is you're doing. And, you know, you, you, you go to answer the questions and talk about the case that you're talking about. And as you're sitting there, you realize that it's just you and a couple of people and that camera right there in your face. And it's, it's kind of like you're being interrogated. So you do start to kind of get that lather build up a little bit. And then you realize you're going to need the powder in a couple of minutes, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I tell you, I'm going to bring my own powder, powder person. There you go. <laughs> we all need our own powder person. Eventually, if yes. we're a little follically challenged, we all need our own powder person. So this, yeah. this book, uh, Alan, which again, incredibly interesting. Bruce MacArthur, The Toronto Gay Village Murders, part of the Killer Queen series, book four. Um, first of all, let's talk a little bit about the Killer Queen series. What inspired you to write the Killer Queen series? Well, it, it, the, the bottom, I was, okay, so I was working on the Leopold and Loeb case. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really interesting. And when I was doing research, I found out that, um, there was a person that run a clinic in Chicago in the 1920s that came from Germany. And um, he was trying to support the gay community and say that, you know, this wasn't shouldn't be an arrestable offense and all this stuff. So he was very pro gay. And so I, when I looked into him, he was doing the same thing in ha Hanover during the Butcher of Hanover. Okay. who was the second book I wrote. So those two books I wrote together. And for me, it was about trying to capture 1920s in Hanover, Germany, as and Chicago in the U.S. And it was trying to compare the two countries and how the cities in these countries treated um, homosexuals, gay people, in both crime and regular events so it was really those two were really about history and um so that's where i got started on it uh because it's really it, because they both were the same kind of crimes and murders serial killings going on but um it was it, they were treated so differently because of the attitudes in the country and the city that it happened in so that interested me, and so that led me on a chase further and started going into Canada and Australia. And as the series continues, it's more of a historical um, story centered around a crime, if that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely. What's interesting about this book is we're looking at Bruce MacArthur, who is a Canadian landscaper, and the time frame of his crimes really is more modern day 2010 to 2017 however 
the way in which he goes about it is is very much uh, gruesome, gruesome, lurid, um, and deceptive. I mean, it's you know he he's and he's going about it in a way that he's picking on an immigrant community, and and he's it's almost like he's he's picking on uh, he's picking on these people thinking. And, and this is maybe just my projection. He's picking on these people thinking that maybe they can be picked away and not be noticed or they can be put away and nobody will notice or nobody will care. Is that a little bit of conjecture or projection on my part? Well, a little bit on your part, but the thing is, it's truthful because I think I was hoping to get that across um, because, again, that's how it aligns with the, re the rest of the books, because you would think something happening in the modern day and in Canada where, you know, they're really far ahead as far as gay rights, you know, and a, it's in the Charter of Rights, it's, you know, it's been for 20 plus years, they, there's been marriage, it's sort of, it's really advanced in rights so you would think in in all countries around in modern times that would be the last one that would be um kind of uh, a problem with Im Im immigrant communities and gay communities and being killed like this and not being addressed by the police so i think that was kind of i was hoping that's what was captured in there oh very much so uh very much so and it it makes it that much sadder in the fact that with the men who are involved, they, in a few instances, the, the men are married, but they, they're, they're confused for, for that. I guess that's the way you could put it. They're, they're confused in that they, they know they want to, they want to, leave the marriages that they know they want to be who they are. They, they want to be, they want to live the lifestyle that they, they know they feel inside. They want to be a gay man. Um, right. Well, well, I, I think that the thing is you got, uh, he, he did this in, uh, this was a purpose. Mm -hmm. um, you know, almost all of his victims were uh, Muslim or from a Muslim country or mm -hmm. had a, uh, that that religion was l large in their community or in their family, even if they still weren't. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So to live a gay lifestyle was to them was just un it's unforgivable. It's not. It's just forbidden. It's just not something that's conceivable. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. So yeah, it that that was a very. Uh, it, but I think that that goes again with the whole concept of it's how your community is feeling about, you know, the, you know, the gay issue um, that makes people make their decisions. That lends to part of the sadness of a few of the stories here and that what really comes across here is, is that when Bruce MacArthur makes that decision to kill some of these men, some of these men have left their families for him with the trust that they're getting into a relationship with Bruce MacArthur. Um, they put their trust in him. And a lot of times when they end up dead, these families don't go to these men's parents to tell them just of 
how these men were killed or they make up an excuse as to how they were killed because they don't want to shock the parents who are of traditional Muslim background. So the parents of these men never really do find out how they died, do they? Right, right. And that, and it's just sort of, it, well, it's got to be a, a situation. You're the brother of someone that who's who's married and living a life and moved to the to canada and um then find out he's been murdered and he had a homosexual relationship um how do you go tell your parents this right i mean how, how do you tell them um it, it's 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 one of those um situations that's got to be really difficult and so of course i guess the, each each family does it their own way but again, you see, it still goes to the idea of how we can't be honest with something because of a community feeling on something. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And yep. how dangerous that can really be. Right, right. When talking about that, there's, there's a community within Toronto that has been for lack of a better term, it's been oppressed by the police for quite some time, the gay village of Toronto. Can you tell us a little bit about the the village and and its history and and what type of oppression it's been under since like even say the forties, fifties, sixties and 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 what it's been living under for that time? Yeah, you know, it's like any other um larger city. Um and in Canada, Toronto is the largest city. And um, it becomes kind of, um, it's always in an area of the city that's kind of um, um, starts out as, let's say, as a little bit less than. It's not really a good community. It's kind of a rough. There's a lot of warehouses. It's uh, uh, vacant, um, poor people. It's not, it's not necessarily a community, so to speak. It's just a place in the city. And that becomes the place where you know, back in the in the day when it's illegal to be gay, um, men would go to meet other men for, you know, let's say say a, a meeting, you know, to, to to get together with other men, and that's kind of where these areas always start out as. It's always sort of a uh, uh, off the beaten track place because mm -hmm. um, a lot of the men, of course, that go there to meet other men have a life they're married they got kids they or they've got a job and you got to remember in the 60s and before that when it was illegal um if someone found out you were in a gay relationship or if you had sex with another man you would be fired you'd lose your job you could lose your your home your family it would be devastating you could go to jail and quite often you did. So this this community started out with that in mind, you know, and then a lot of the uh, drugs and, and, and prostitution all developed in that area. But o over time, it became a viable community and strong community and a, a great place to live. And it really built up and uh, became what it is now. Um, so the gay village and yeah there there's there's it's quite it's quite a history in that particular city as well so um and I, that's sort of what i did cover a lot of that in the book and that's again that's it's kind of in making of the series it's more about letting you know 
what the statues were, what, what the city was about and what, what was going on and how it developed and um, what, what was kind of a history of that city more than just a gay district. The attitude of the police towards the district was was quite oppressive as well. It was it was one that had to change with the times as Toronto and, and Canada eventually developed laws that were slightly more friendly towards the gay community. However, the police weren't as friendly. They didn't change with the times. Can you describe to me how it was that the police didn't change with the times and what it was they were still doing even after uh, Canada decided to uh, adopt the community. Well, you know, they were, they, they would commit raids. They would um, go to gay places and they would drag men out and, and uh, assault them, beat them. They would even threaten to uh, expose them to their jobs. It was still really, uh, it was still a bad time. You got to remember that, it, you know, just because a law changes, like when, you know, in 67, you can say, well, it's no longer illegal to be gay. You can't be arrested for it. You know, at that point, uh, it starts to change, but it takes a long time. It takes generations for it to really be something that's part of the community rather than um, it doesn't happen overnight. You can't just flip the switch. You can make it legal. But because if you were a cop, um, let's say in 1970, and you'd been a cop for 15 years or whatever, um, your whole mentality would be uh, gays are illegal. They're criminals. They're bad people. I even put the <laughs> the one where um, they talked to the uh, sergeant or captain, I can't remember now, of the police force about hiring gays. And when he even said, well, I would never hire a homosexual because they're criminals. Right. Just you have the mentality that, OK, these are bad people, period. And so with that, if you grow up with that and then if you're enforcing that for 10, 20 years, however long you're a cop and then the then the government goes, well, it's no longer illegal. You can't arrest them. You, you can't just turn that off. Yeah. You know, yeah. you've been doing living and doing this thing. You know, you're a 40 year old cop and you've been um pushing around and beating and doing whatever else, raiding places. And, and, and you just look at a gay person as someone that's just awful, criminal, terrible. You can't change that overnight. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm not, it's not like I'm sticking up for the cops, but I'm, what I'm doing is I'm just trying to describe the situation. Um, so then when you get criminal acts happening toward gays, the cops aren't interested. Why am I, who cares, right? It, it's the mentality. It's like, yeah, whatever. They're, they're criminals. Why Why are we worried about that? We're worried about um, real crime. <laughs> and so uh, you have to kind of understand the community in order to understand why the cops were the way they were, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I'm not saying it's right. It's just that, you know, if you, if you, if you really understand the situation of the city at the time and the way people were and the way the cops were, you would sort of maybe kind of understand why it, it went that way. And that attitude, folks, plays into a lot of what happens with Bruce MacArthur, even into 2010, 
all the way into 2017 when it comes time to figure out what he is guilty of and what he's done with these men and what he's done with their bodies. Because there's some reported incidents with Bruce MacArthur that we'll talk about a little bit later in the program that people don't, uh, we'll just say that it, well, we'll we'll talk about it a little bit later here, uh, Alan, but we'll we'll just say that it's, it's mistaken as a domestic situation and just dismissed where really it should have been looked into further by the police because the police just essentially say, well, you know what, nah, we'll let bygones be bygones or it was an honest spat or it is whatever it was. You guys were just fooling around or doing whatever. It's not for us to, to judge or, or, you know, that in order to take a, a, um, Let's just say there wasn't a, a an unbiased look at the situation. Is that a good way of putting it? Yeah. And, you know, it, it, there's a lack of understanding. If you have a group of people that you don't understand in your community and you think that what they're doing is just breaking the law and being bad people, then you have no desire to learn. Do you know what I mean? Or get involved mm-hmm. in, the, in that community, in that group of people, and try to find out what's going on. And if people are ending up hurt or are dead or with problems, you tend not to care as much because like, well, if they would live properly, they wouldn't have this problem became an attitude. So, you know, you get you move from being these are illegal, bad criminals to, okay, so they're not illegal, bad criminals anymore. They're just people with bad lifestyles. If they improve their lifestyle, they wouldn't get into this trouble but it's still blaming the victim, you know? Yes. Yeah. And and so that it just, it just moved up one step is all it did. It just, it sort of grew from, well, they're terrible criminals to, well, they're just bad people doing bad things. They need to straighten out their life. You know, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, if they didn't live that way, they wouldn't have this problem. So, you know, it wasn't helpful at best. To right, do that. Right. Bruce MacArthur. Let's talk a little bit about him and his beginnings here. Bruce is, is born in 1951, Lindsay, Ontario, grows up on a farm with his parents and older sister. What's different about Bruce than other kids? And what forms him into the man that he's about to become? Well, you know, I hate to say. I hate to say or blame something for why people turn out a certain way, because I think it's a lot more detailed than what we can find out. Um, But um, he did have a problem with his father. Uh, His father, right from the get-go, thought that Bruce was was gay. He was a little too feminine, and he was too much like a woman. So in Bruce's father's point of view, he needed to make him a man and so he worked him hard and uh, he wanted him to uh, you know be a man and he thought manual labor and strict religion uh, would turn him into that and kind of get him away from being this little femi gay boy type thing was the attitude that his dad had so um, so he worked him on the farm and eventually um um, actually, MacArthur did become stronger and much more 
I guess if you want to say manly or masculine in a term. And um, the, the MacArthur household, they used to bring in uh, children that, um, I don't know what you, how you want to describe it, but people that were kind of uh, in need of some support and help. And so, uh, and of course, Bruce would be in charge of that and he would help, uh, you know, train these kids how to work on the farm and do stuff. So he had a lot of interaction with uh, young men and uh, probably had a lot of influence on how he uh, developed as well um, with that. And that's the best way to say that. Um, but he never did really connect with his father properly, but there was definitely an unusual relationship there. Um, how much that made who Bruce was, I, I again, I'm not a psychologist, so I just okay. play one on TV. Yeah, <laughs> it's true and a good one at that. Um, <laughs> so he gets through high school, goes to college. He's not a great student, gets average grades, goes to uh, Barry College, meets his future wife, Janice, graduates in 1973, gets together with Janice. They eventually get married. If he's if he's gay, why is he getting involved with Janice, and what's the story there? Um, I think it's another one of those where if you if you're strictly religious and you're told that um, gay is not good, um, you try not to be that. And then at the other at the other side of it too, with the you know his father is trying to basically beat it out of him. You got to be a man and all this. So. It's, it's a very confusing time, I think, because your body's feeling one way, but his mind is told it's another. So um, like a lot of men, especially in those times, like in the 60s and 70s, um, they push through. They meet someone, they like them, get along with them, and they get married. And they, you know, and sometimes a lot of men too, gay too, um, still want to be a father. They still want to have kids mm -hmm. and they still want to do that. So they just kind of move forward with that kind of life. And this is what he did. And he met someone that he really liked, got along with quite well. They got married and they moved in together and he went to work. He, he became the person he was supposed to be in his mind, you know. Um, get a job, have a wife, have kids, and uh, move forward. And that's what he did. He does end up, as you mentioned, he, he does, does have two kids. Uh, he changes from being Catholic to Presbyterian, attends local church with his family. But at the same time, he still has his urges. He, uh, he goes to internet chat rooms, um, doesn't want to be too risky, doesn't go to parks or anything like that. Um, doesn't want to get caught cruising or anything like that. But then oh, yeah. he, he eventually starts to take those chances there and starts having casual affairs with other men that he had met um, and stops having sex with Janice. Tell me in there, Alan, where the worm starts to turn and he he decides that he's going to embrace the gay lifestyle but then he's going to go one step further because there's a there's a hatred here too in his life he develops a hatred towards his mother for you know 
embracing another man and, and getting married to another man, where hatred starts to rise to the surface because it's more than just embracing his sexuality. There's hatred that comes in here in this story as well. Well, there's a lot of hatred. It starts out, I think he started out with hatred for himself because he didn't live up to his father and he couldn't, he would never make his father happy. And then again, even his mother and, and the religion, the church he went to, um, he was so, unha uh, you know, unhappy and, and he blamed a lot of it on himself. And I think the, the gay urges, they were too strong. And, and when he met, I think he met a few people. And when he met one guy that he ended up moving in with um, and feeling strong thoughts and, and love for a person, that made it even more confusing. So I think what it ended up happening was he started focusing on the gay itself, the, the sexuality of it, and blaming that for all of his problems, you know, and he also had a lot of financial problems as he got, you know, the kids going and the, and everything like that. So it was, I think it's just too much pressure. And it was, it, he had been told all of his life that this one thing was wrong. And because he couldn't stop that one thing of being gay, this is why he had all these problems finances, everything, you know, and, uh, a bankruptcy eventually happened. Um, so it, it, it was just, it, you know, it, it was, it was, I don't know what you call that, but it was just, it, he looked at that one thing and that became the focus of his anger. He also has a bit of a, I don't want to call it a morality crisis, but his son Todd is also getting into a lot of trouble as well. So at times he has to again, lack of a better term, he has to straighten up, fly right, be a father to his son, take him under his wing and under his roof at times when Todd gets into trouble and bring him under his roof and have to, I don't want to use the term appear straight, but I guess that's a term you could say is used. Um, but then he has to get Todd out, out onto his own. Todd keeps coming back under the roof. And I suppose that's a damper on on him trying to be himself as well. Oh, yeah, because I think, you know, it's again, he 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 starts to act like his father acted toward him. You know, he has, you know, this this anger and this toughen up the boy to make him to make him a man in order to straighten him out, not gay, but just straighten him out as in, you know, because he was a bad kid and doing bad things, you know, uh, crimes. And so it was about time. And so he sort of, again, he had to continue the pretense of being the son of what his father wanted in order to see, because in his mind, when he acted the way his father wanted him to act, he was doing the right thing and things were good. But whenever he couldn't act that way and went to the gay side of himself, everything was wrong. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It became the thing that caused all the problems. It really, and that's that's kind of important um, because in his mind, he had to he had to kill the gay, so to speak. He had to stop it, and and so um, he started putting that hate on to people that turned him on so to speak, people that he was attracted to. 
That's an important part where we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to find out exactly how Bruce MacArthur tried to kill the gay. In other words, he transferred it onto other innocent people. We'll talk about those innocent people and when he drew first blood. That's coming up next uh, on the big program with our guest, Alan R. Warren. The book, which is available right now, we have a link in the description of this program, is Bruce MacArthur, The Toronto Gay Village Murders. It is book four in the Killer Queen series. Again, it's available right now. We have it in the uh, description of this program. Just click on that link and get your copy of the book during the break. When we come back, Bruce MacArthur draws first blood. We'll talk about it next here on True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to the best in true crime talk radio. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Our guest is Alan R. Warren. The book is book four in the Killer Queen series. It's Bruce MacArthur, The Toronto Gay Village Murders. When last we left you, we were talking about Bruce MacArthur. He's got his son Todd under his roof. He's trying to get him on the straight and narrow from committing different crimes. He's also had different relationships under his roof but he's not yet settled on uh, one particular lover or another. He's about to enter into a relationship that's about to prove fatal. He's about to draw first blood because he is a self-hating homosexual, for lack of a better term, and has decided that he needs to kill the gay away, as as Alan put it uh, quite eloquently in our last segment. Let's talk about his first kill, Alan. Let's talk about when he draws first blood in his, in his first victim. Well, you know, when I was writing the book, uh, the first one that the police talked about and the ones that we kind of knew at the time were, um, it happened in 2001 and it was Halloween. And, uh, it was when someone, uh, um, a person he was uh coming home from shopping um halloween he was going to do some partying that night and he had some other things to do and uh when he got to his apartment um he saw um macarthur actually who was just close to the door and uh, actually running toward the door and there's a few different stories i've from different witnesses on how this actually happened but in essence so he stood there and held the door open for MacArthur because he thought MacArthur was part of the apartment building or lived in the same or was visiting someone. So he held the door open for him and MacArthur came in. And so he, this guy um, went to back to his apartment and opened the door. And just then when uh, he turned around, MacArthur hit him on the head and attacked him. And uh, that was kind of the first strike that we know about uh, at the time. Um, and I say that because later it, it went, he took a job as a rep for a sock company. Um, first worked at a department store selling socks and he became a rep. So he traveled all around the province. And looking back on things now, there was a lot of attacks and a lot of victims that were um, men in the situations in small towns throughout the uh the whole province of Ontario, which is a large province, like, you know, California or something. Mm -hmm. And um, 
so they now they're sort of putting it to they they say he was out attacking men at that time and assaulting men and probably sort of like what he did to this victim uh without killing them you know he would attack them and assault them and beat them and then leave them so we're kind of not sure where it started but this is the first one that we have a the witness to and we have an a you know an account of what happened yikes let's talk about uh skandaraj skanda navratnam uh, in 2010, who's uh, affectionately known as Skanda, he was leaving Zipper's nightclub in September of 2010. And how does he meet up with with um, with uh, Bruce MacArthur? And and how did they get involved with each other? Well, you know, he was out at clubbing as usual, and um, like a lot of people do, you know, they they go out clubbing and drinking, and then the uh, or to a barbecue or, you know, they had a lot of things like that back then, um, events, um, for different parts of the gay community. And I think that was the, the Eagle that he was at. It was a barbecue. Um, and anyway, so they go clubbing and doing stuff. And, um, he met up through that, through there, I believe it was like, um, at the club itself. And uh, I think he was last seen leaving with this unknown person. And that would have been where he met him. I think with um, MacArthur, in almost every one of these cases, MacArthur kind of um, scoped out. He knew the club circuit. He went out and he knew where people hung out, which groups of people hung out in different areas, different the types of men, for instance. And so he would uh, go there, get to know, and kind of, scope out his victims in a sense um he knew what he liked in a man and it was kind of it must have been a terrible fight in his own mind of searching out a type of man that you liked and then taking them home and killing them you know what i mean because yeah, you liked yeah. them that's why you killed them that's crazy and i think this was kind of with almost every one of these victims and some people say um because a lot of these victims um were immigrants they were gay immigrants from um you know a arabic country of some sort usually that um that was he chose that type of victim to um because they wouldn't be noticed or they wouldn't be reported and, you know, the same old stuff. And I think there's a little bit of that in there, but I think he really did have an attraction to that type of man, if that makes sense. It wasn't, sure. I, I don't think he actually sat there and plotted and goes, well, if I get immigrants, um, nobody's going to notice or I, I have a better chance of not getting caught. I don't think he had that in his mind. He was actually attracted to this type of man because almost everybody he would been in, in a relationship with and stuff and had any sort of you know um intimacy with was that type of man yeah he does break the pattern once i believe uh, of not uh choosing someone who's uh either an immigrant or of darker skin i know that um from reading the book oh yeah 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 there's going to be some of that but i think he really had 
I don't think he had a hate. There were some people that thought, well, he hated. No, 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 it's not. Or or that, and that's no, no. I think I think these were the type of men he enjoyed being with, but because the enjoyment went too far for him, um, he hated what became of it more than. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of he hated the actions that it would cause him that he couldn't control. Right, and he he was he was punishing them because he couldn't really punish himself. I guess I yeah. it's very complicated, and and and, and I, I wished I I could understand that better, more like a psychiatrist would. Well, it know? is and it isn't. I think you hit it on the head there. It it, it he is he's punishing them because he can't punish himself. Uh, you know, he's 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 been deluged by dogma that tells him he should be one way, but he feels another way. And, and he's, you know, he feels he should be living the life his father's been telling him he should be living. But at the same time, he's, you know, he knows he wants to live a certain way. But he's, you know, the guilt that's being manufactured there is, is a guilt that's, you know, been instilled in him. It's not a guilt that he naturally feels. So there's, there's a tug of war going on there. Uh, yeah. And it must have been very, very hard very painful to be like going to church or going home and 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 knowing that you just had sex with a man or you're attracted to a man mm-hmm. and then go you know what i mean like yeah. it's reinforced yeah. all the time oh, yeah. it must have been Weekly. really really yeah, yeah. yeah. it's been a terrible struggle and i'm not trying to feel sorry i'm not trying to you know any of that stuff but i'm just saying in his world he it was a battle i think yeah Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The sad thing about Skanda, uh, the man who's murdered here in 2010, that I found incredibly sad. He had a puppy that he absolutely loved, a husky, that he walked through the village and he was very attentive to this puppy and he went everywhere with this puppy. And the one thing that was noticed by his brothers, he had brothers that were here with him as well, Skanda did. And it was the fact that the puppy wasn't attended to was one of the one of the things that they noticed, first of all. The other thing was that his mother was back in Sri Lanka. She was 80 years old and had a bad heart. The brothers didn't want her to worry. So, and they knew that the, the shock of, of Skanda being missing, first of all, or even found dead would kill her. So they wanted to keep that from her. But it was the this puppy, knowing this puppy would be looking for its master, knowing that, or it's human, and knowing that this mother could never be told that her son was missing or dead, or eventually would, would be told, but that they would have to tell this grieving mother that something else happened to her son. It's just so tragic and sad. Yeah. I think a lot of these are, and um, I think every one of these stories, it, that there's 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 a lot more meaning to it because you, you understand, um, you know, that like they were immigrants, they had a, in, in you know, a, a struggle as it was being in Canada and they have this history and then being gay and some of them being married and some of them there's there's there, there's so many details and because of what how they were let's say killed right or taken out of um it must have been 
you can sort of understand why it didn't make the impact that it should have in Toronto or in the society and in within the police. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's it, it shows you how wrong it is to be judging people. And I and I and again that's kind of that was kind of the emphasis of the book. Um and and yeah, I, I don't I'm not trying to slam policing and and any of that sort of stuff. It's just sort of these are just what happened and this is what happens when we get wrapped up in these opinions of what it is to be gay or what it is to be uh, Muslim or immigrant or you got all these things, right? And um, rather than try to figure out what's really going on, um, you know, like 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 Skanda and his dog and about his mother and all this stuff like this, this was not an important thing in the eyes of law enforcement. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They, they looked at it like, oh, yeah, well, he was just, you know, well, I don't say it, but he was an immigrant. He's like gay. Didn't write. They didn't really, you know, he's missing. Oh, well. You know, they have, it just wasn't an important issue. They had no ties with that community at that time, no sort of ins. So there was no, you know, so I, you know, it's, it's one of those hard things to deal with because it could have been handled so much better um, than it was. Um, and because of a lot of these cases, it is now handled better, right? So things are better than they were. Well, I'm glad they're better than what they were because the way they were was atrocious, actually, Alan. Yeah. I, you know, I, well, there, there's there's some perfect examples in this book of of just plain of plain well, incompetence. That, that's the, well, that's the it, way it, it incompetence is a polite word, and and because it's not about the incompetence, it's about it's about people that are in a job that um, and they're human. And they develop opinions, you know, like if, you know, you're out policing and a certain type of person is always bad. Like I said, the idea of a cop uh, in the times of the 60s and 70s was totally about, you know, come on, uh, gay people are bad. They're criminals. So y you can't change that overnight. And so it just shows you that the attitude toward the immigration and immigrants at that time, and even now there's still issues, but back then it was even worse and so it was just um i don't really think it's incompetence morris is it's just uncaring about a certain group of people because of how you value them you know mm -hmm. and that's that's where the issue lied because in the minds of the society at the time the minds of the average joe citizen too not just the police was not a positive one on um, immigrants and immigrants from Sri Lanka or Arabic countries and Muslims was not positive. It was quite negative. And um, therefore, you have less people caring about it. And it includes the police who are supposed to be out helping and protecting and solving crimes like this or searching. A lot of victims, and I this is really kind of, I, I put even people that were not victims of MacArthur, but that were in the same community that were missing and it wasn't addressed. The police didn't even look, didn't even spend any time trying to figure out what happened to the victims because of the community that they're in. 
So, you know, being gay, being trans, being uh, there were some uh, transsexuals and transvestites that were missing and some found dead. There was a whole thing going on and it just was not an issue. If anything, it was back to the attitude of, well, if they didn't live that way, they wouldn't have that problem, you know? And I think that was typically what the police thought at the time. So there's um, there's you know. a there's a point. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there, Alan. There's a there's a point, and what we talk about incompetence. There's a point where essentially, with one of the victims, or, or almost victims, we'll put almost victims here. Bruce MacArthur is he solicits uh, an almost victim to have sex in a van, in his van. Right. Goes to choke this almost victim, and the, the victim realizes they're about to be killed, that he isn't going to stop, that this isn't just rough play, that this is essentially the, the ending of his life. He manages to get away and tells MacArthur, I'm going to call the cops. MacArthur decides that it worked one other time before. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to go into the cops and turn myself in and just say, hey, I had a little bit of rough play that went wrong here. Um, you understand, don't you? And the cop would go, oh, yeah, no big deal. Yeah, yeah, we, we get it. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah, and that was kind of a, uh, you know, the very his very first victim way back in the beginning that we talked about uh, that survived. Um, he what he did was he had gone to the police with that one and told them that it got out of hand and all that stuff, and he got away with it in that case. And so he used that again with this one that happened at the Tim Hortons, which is a uh, like a Dunkin' Donuts in mm -hmm. the u.s you know it's that kind of thing so it's the same thing and you're right i mean and again it, i have to wonder what's going through a cop's mind when someone tells you about their assault really and saying it's rough play out of and and how much like because how much is incompetence and how much is just uncaring yeah he didn't care about the victim. Oh, well, <laughs> you know what I mean? That kind of attitude. And, and see, it just show it. And I think that the cases I put in, in the, then the way I described them in the situations was more to get people to understand about it was how they felt about the community, the people in the community, rather than getting to know who these people were and and how they lived and who were important to these people and who they cared about and who cared about them. It was more like, oh, well, if you're one of them, oh, well, no big deal. Do you know what I mean? Right. Or it's just part uh -huh. of, you know, that cop, oh, it's just part of it. You know, guys get together and they just do that and they roughhouse. Oh, well, I've heard that's part of what they do. And it was a nine minute interrogation. Nine minutes. <laughs> How can you decide if anyone's done anything wrong in nine minutes? Because it, it, the victim wasn't important. It's the only reason you do that. The only reason um, you're you're you know you're talking about a couple of guys 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, who cares? I don't want to hear about it. Uh, yeah, but don't you don't need to tell me about what. Yeah, no, no. Okay, don't worry about it. It's more about that than uh, it, it, it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which it's hard to phantom that now. And as we go into f- the future, I think things that are happening today and the way people are treated today, let's say in different situations in 20, 30 years, it's going to be the same thing. People in the future are going to go look back and go, wow, can you believe they did that? <laughs> it's just, um, I don't know, it's progress. You know, it's really hard when you go through this and you talk to a lot of people and you're doing the, the book and you're going through the cases. It's really tough. Um, it's hard to believe that that was this was happening. Do you know what I mean? It's tough yeah. to think that there are people like this. And and it's tough not to uh, dislike them. But I'm trying. Not, I tried not to have any judgment toward any of the police or any of that stuff. It's just sort of I'm trying to put it down to it's just part of what we have to look at to understand how we are as a society. Sure. One of the yeah. more disturbing things in the book, Alan, and I'm going to I'm going to use three words here. I think you know where I'm going with this. Um, and tell me how this ties into the case. Zambian meat website. Um, <laughs> and how did this tie into Bruce MacArthur? And how exactly did Toronto police glom onto this and figure out that somehow this tied into Bruce MacArthur? And what exactly is a Zambian meat website? Uh, it's a place you order some really good food. No, um, <laughs> Zambian meat is, it, it was a, um, officially it was a, a website, recreational website. It was a website for people that fantasized about being cannibals or being eaten by a cannibal. So if you were a person that fantasized about this or was, it turned on by this or whatever and you want it to be um let's say uh how do you say um live through that kind of experience without really doing it you could join this website and you could meet other people that were in the same mindset as you and you guys could have fantasy role-playing uh time together that's the official stance okay Mm. that's that's how the website described it and that's what they believed and Blah, blah, blah. That's it, right? Mm-hmm. But what was happening was there was people that were really doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, one was a cop, and I believe he was a detective in Germany or Switzerland. Um, and he got arrested and tried for this sort of uh, being involved in this and to being really involved in eating people, right? And so... Um, when the Swiss police uh, were doing their investigation, the detectives went through and found people that were part of the site and logged in and and were taking part in these sort of things. And MacArthur was one of them. And, and so they reported it to the Canadian authorities, the Toronto police and the RCMP, and let them know that, you know, you had... And... and that's kind of where it comes to incompetence and not caring because it they still didn't put together all these missing gay men in in the Toronto area 
and having a person that was into Zambian meat, so to speak. And um, so that, there was a lot of problems with that. And, and <laughs> there's a lot of interesting things about that case uh, and, and about how they tied it in. But actually, um, who they focused attention on was a, um, he was a school um, hockey team um, coach. Yeah. Yep. And that's who they focused on, not Bruce MacArthur, but this guy. And that guy was being watched for quite a while, and they eventually arrested him and raided his house and everything like that. And he was charged and stuff. And uh, uh, he didn't get charged for the uh, cannibalism or anything like that. He got charged for having cameras set up in the boys' change in locker rooms of the team he coached. So he was filming uh, underage boys, um, you know, showering and naked and doing whatever and stuff like that. And so that's what they charged him with and focused on it. It was really kind of a sideline and it really had nothing to do with it, but it did lead them to Bruce MacArthur, you know. If I can, can I just read one paragraph here so our audience gets an idea of the Zambian Meat website? Sure. We'll talk about uh, the the one officer, police officer you were talking about earlier. The police officer identified only as Detlef G. They found out, or we found out later that the G stood for Genzel. The officer was arrested while on the job where he gave a partial confession, but wouldn't say why he did it. He initially told police that the two men met on the Zambian Meat website where the man had asked Genzel to kill and eat him afterwards. After a few months of interaction through emails, texts, and phone calls, the two met at the train station so that he could fulfill the man's fantasy. In December of 2016, he was found guilty of murder and distributing a dead body and sentenced to eight years in prison. During the trial, Detlef G. admitted that they met to have sex. The two men had got into an argument where Detlef stabbed the victim. Later, when he found the man dead, he decided to chop the body up into parts and dispose of it on the grounds. His defense lawyer said that the victim hanged himself and Detlef had nothing to do with his death. (laughs) Sounds like a couple of party guys. Well, you know, it makes you want to have lunch. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I tell you, you know, and, you know, and so this is the kind of this, there's a lot of aspects to this case that are crazy like that. And that's, um, how do you explain that? How do you, I, it's an endless, um, who would want to do that? I don't know. The terms are just crazy. Okay. So yeah. Oh well, yeah. Right. All the terms and the, and the nicknames and stuff. The, it's As you put here eloquently in the book, most people on a website forum like this are known as howlers. They fantasize about cannibalism, but are never really doing it into doing it. Like you had pointed out. They were considered no harm to anyone. On the website, you saw a completely black screen with several gross images of human body parts and a log of older conversations made by members, including detailed descriptions of eating human flesh. Names or titles used on the website were the long pig, considered a possible victim, and a chef who was a qualified cannibal. Then there was the master chef, who was not a qualified, not only a qualified cannibal, but was able to butcher and prepare the human meat for consumption. It is uncertain exactly what it took to be considered qualified for this title. It's pretty amazing, hey? 
Um, I have to say one of the other things too, another person that was part of that group was um, another killer um, that was in Canada at the time. And, um, the, and uh, it was an interesting case as well, because this guy was a, uh, um, how do you say, he was like a, a stripper and he was a model. And um, when he got his victim, um, he actually had the guy tied up. And what he did was then he filmed it and he filmed cutting him up and and eating and having sex with the body um and um then he put it online and it got over three hundred thousand views before the rcmp took it down and and they arrested him wow and this guy would hang out with bruce MacArthur at at a certain club um as well and they knew each other and that was another interesting link that i couldn't i just it's like this is just too weird you know so um that was i didn't i I had no idea about the zambian meat website i'd never heard of it before but apparently it was big in certain circles just not mine see i had heard of it before the book I just, I, I had heard of it from, I think, one or two other books that I had read, but I chose not to think it was real. I, I, I just thought maybe it was a, I don't know if it was an act of fiction or if it was just, it was a internet rumor or, but it's real. It's it, certainly real. And uh, there, I think I think that's it. You don't believe, you know. You hear about role playing, and you hear about all this stuff, and people dressing up and and doing all that. And so you kind of put it to that, I guess. You don't really want to believe that people are on there and actually looking to eat other people, or have, or could you being a person that you want to be killed and eaten by someone. You know what I mean? Like you don't think that that could be real and i think that's kind of the that's why we sort of just pass by that sort of stuff when you hear it and you think it's got to be one of those fake sites you hear about (laughs) it's just crazy so before we leave people today let's talk about bruce MacArthur and exactly how he disposed of these people he killed which is again we we mentioned bruce MacArthur is a landscaper but he didn't own the company, did he? Well, uh, not initially. Actually, a friend of his um, caught up with him and said, hey, you know, I've got this landscaping job kind of going and, and company I'm doing myself and you come to work for me. So we went to work for him and then they became partners. And eventually the company did become his uh, before the arrest and everything. So he did become the owner of that company. Um, it was just small, but they, they were actually doing landscaping for upper middle class to high class people and places, you know, um, golf courses and stuff. So they were um, doing uh, really good landscaping. Uh, they were known for it. So if people, uh, any reputable place or golf place or people that were had a really nice you know 
um, lawn and house and all that, quite often they would use their services. <laughs> wow. Okay. So Bruce MacArthur gets in contact with one of our victims, has sex with the victim, kills the victim, decides to chop up the victim then? Yes. Yeah, because he couldn't, you know, by then he was back in an apartment and even at times when his son was living with him and on, you know, he had to try and keep everything, uh, you know, he didn't have the, the room, let's say. So, yeah, he would, he would just, he got really good at um, dismantling and uh, the body. And um, one of the places that he did uh, landscaping at were friends of his, sort of, like they, they really got along well and they had a lot of property and they had like a, um, like a shed out on this really big field. So they let MacArthur keep a lot of his equipment there because he didn't have the room for it at an apartment. And so he would do a lot of it there and then he would take them the, the 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 extra like the leftover parts that he couldn't dispose of and he would bury them or plant them in plants and in pots and in uh, different parts of the uh, landscaping he would do he would uh, put remaining parts that he didn't dispose of in other ways there so yeah jeez <laughs> it, it and it describes I do get into detail how long it took of uh, the police to go through all of the properties and to search and look for remains of victims um, because there was there was eight that we know about uh, for sure and there was a lot of body parts left in different places and they found them in uh, it, in several places they found uh, what was some sort of remains of different bodies. So that was how he, that's how he fin how he disposed of them. Yeah. Well, like Alan said, there's uh, details on on how they recover the bodies. There's details on what happened to Todd, his son, in there, and there's details on more murders in the gay village in 2017, along with some other uh, some other details on other cases in there of some other uh, murders. Um, you got to pick up the book, folks. It's it's quite an enthralling book and an interesting book in that uh, on just some of the it's just atrocious acts that were committed um, in Toronto against the gay community and uh, specifically that Bruce MacArthur committed. Um, but really, it, it's uh, there's there's quite the lessons to be learned here as well in 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 this book, but. Man, Zambian meat website. I did not sleep well the night after I I read that. I got to tell you that, Alan. No barbecue? No, there was no barbecue on the menu <laughs> the, the day I read that or the day after I read that. So just so you know yeah. that, my friend. Well, you know, I, and again, you see, I, I, I tried to make it an overall, you know, that's why I have other cases. I have other, the police review, what happened, survivors. I tried to have the whole thing in there. I'm trying to look at the whole you know what goes on in a in a society and how we treat victims because we don't understand them mm. you know what i mean or yeah. because we're not we don't we don't learn about them we're, we we turn away and kind of go oh well or whatever we do however a reaction is and, it, and i think that's kind of and i'm hoping the whole series does that and i'm not picking on any one country that's why i'm traveling sure place to place 
because it happens everywhere. And to not just gay people, but to immigrants and all sorts of, uh, you know, women have been abused. There's been abuse in society, period. And it's just sort of, um, it's just an overall look. I hope it, it turned out well. It did. It, a very good book. Very good book. And you're right. If we're all a little bit kinder to each other, a little more gentler to each other, we all live in a little bit better world. So it, it's uh, it's important to read some of the lessons that are in this book and, and just realize that uh, really, if we just take a moment to, to recognize each other rather than be, uh, you know, unkind and, and unfeeling towards each other, we'd, we'd all uh, be living in a much better world. So, yeah. Uh, and Zambian meat is no longer available. So thank God you're going to have to come up with another website. <laughs> thank you, God. Jeez, that's oh, <laughs> turns my stomach just thinking about it. <laughs> uh, Ellen, I want to thank you so much for being on the program today. It's been a pleasure. I always appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, we appreciate you being on as well. Again. Bruce MacArthur, The Toronto Gay Village Murders, is available. It's book four in the Killer Queen series, available right now in the link in the description of this program. Go get the book right now. Let's lighten things up a little bit. Let's bring in Mally Fox. It's time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. It's it's Crayon News Storytime. What happened with this dude, Christbearer? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? Hey, I need help. And what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time once again, the time you've all been looking forward to. It's time for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. And with that, we bring in a co-hostess, the co-hostess with the mostest. We bring in Miss Mally Fox. Hi, Mally. Hello. You know, Mally, uh... I want to start out Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals by telling you about the biggest criminal of all time. Okay. Who's Gir- that? What? I said, who's that? The Girl Scouts. Oh, is it that time again? It is that time again, Mal. And guess what? What? Those uh, little drug dealers over there, the Girl Scouts, the ones who get us hooked on Girl Scout cookies every single year have announced that they're bringing up the price of Girl Scout cookies from $5 a box to $6 a box. Well, you know what? It's so worth it. Yeah. Not when yeah. you like actually look and see, okay, I just spent $6 for two sleeves of cookies. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's once a year. It's for a good cause. I remember it schlepping is. those things. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I, it's just... I can't resist. I mean, when they're sitting there in the grocery store and they've got the table and they're so... They're still, I, I, they are the best salesmen in the world besides crack salesmen. They really right. are. I mean, they, mm-hmm. I, I think that New Jack City, the movie was based around Girl Scout cookie salespeople. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think they, they actually take over a small tenement in the middle of the ghetto and they manufacture, they make Keebler elves go to work for them and they manufacture these cookies and then they come out and they just beat you down until they sell billions upon billions of Girl Scout cookies. See, now we've got geniuses here in Michigan because they set outside the uh, dispensaries. <gasps> that is genius. Isn't it? Oh my goodness. It is. Those suckers are everywhere though. So I'm always picking up a box here, box there because I figure, oh, I can freeze them. 
but I eat a whole box in one setting. See, so you never can. You can't. You, you never can put it in the freezer and just leave mm-hmm. it there. You can't do it. You can't. You got to put them in the back, like behind, like the frozen vegetables that you touch, like once a year. <laughs> <laughs> you got to hide them, and then you're like, oh, look at this. Oh no, those thin mints were meant to stay there for the rest uh-huh. of the season. Nope, they come out like a week <laughs> later. You're done with them. Well, and now that they're so handy, because back in the day when I had to sell them, you would order and then you would have to like wait. That seemed forever. Yeah, and then yeah. you pass them out. Here, it's instant gratification. That's right. They got them stocked. They, they bring in the boxes and they hide them under the table. And then they're like, oh, were you wanting more than one? Because we have more under the table. And you're like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, you try to ne- negotiate the price break, right? You're like. You're <laughs> oh, like, you do? Oh, I do. Yeah, I try to. <laughs> I try to dicker with them, right? I'm like, well, you know, if if I get like five boxes, can you knock it down? They're like, nope, nope, because <laughs> of the old price of five dollars a box, five dollars a box, five dollars a box. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, really? Well, because it sounds better when you go or four for twenty. You're like, oh, okay, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what one one young lady did to me. She goes, no, it's five dollars a box or four for twenty. Would you like four for twenty? And I went, oh, you. <laughs> It's the same price. And she goes, I know. <laughs> but it sounds better. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. She was quite the sales lady. <laughs> and I was like, damn. They really, they, they, they make these ladies sharp from the, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then eventually they become CEOs. <laughs> I'm telling you. They just, uh, they, they're, they're making these ladies into sharp little CEOs that will eventually take over the world. That's a good thing. Meanwhile, boys are over there making soapbox derbies that that don't do shit. (laughs) And catching things on fire. And catching things on fire. They become little pyromaniacs that make wooden cars. So they can burn up the wooden cars in a crash. That's all we do. And we tie knots. So we become eventually little serial killers over in Boy Scouts. Meanwhile, girls are running the world uh, as CEOs. And that's the lesson for today on Dumb Crimes, Stupid Criminals. That's why all the dumb crimes are committed by men in this segment, except for one. Okay. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That's that's what you'll find out about this segment. That's why. <laughs> that's the dividing line right there. And that's your lesson from Timmy today. <laughs> I just found it interesting that, yeah, that the price went up. <clears throat> well... Yeah. Prices are going up everywhere. They are. Inflation is a heck of a deal. Although they'll tell you that inflation, no, 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 inflation is 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 uh, is is leveling out and things are fine. And but there's no such thing as deflation. You ever notice that? Uh uh-uh. Or an increase in your pay <laughs> to right. to counteract right right the inflation. They'll tell you, well, the job market's great. Well, that's great, but I don't want to go get you know 14 jobs to pay for everything. Right. You know, can we just be able to pay for it with one job? That'd be nice. One job is fine. One job's yeah. good. Yeah. Today on Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals, Mally, we've got we've got it all. We've got horses and buggies. We've got food. We've got guys shooting at uh, imaginary ninjas. And boy, have we got a long, not safe for work part of the program. Okay. So let's get to it, shall we? We'll start in your neck of the woods. Uh, over there in Michigan with an alleged Walmart horse and buggy bandit who was found hiding under clothes in a motel shower. Okay. It's a, it's a heck of a story, folks. We go to Sturgeon. Is he Amish? Um, 
I, I, I'm not sure. Oh. Sturgis, Michigan. Are you familiar? I don't know where that is. Not uh-uh. familiar with it? A woman is accused of stealing an Amish family's horse and buggy from outside of Walmart and found hiding in a motel shower under a pile of clothes. This according to Sturgis Police Department records. About 5.30 p.m. on January 20th, which was a Saturday. It's a great night for stealing Amish buggies, by the way. A Saturday Apparently. Night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Police responded to the Walmart on Centerville Road to investigate a stolen Amish buggy and horse. The owners, an Amish couple from... Oh, I'm sorry, this is Indiana, not Sturgis. What? No. We're going to Michigan, but for some reason, the owners are an Amish couple from Ships... Ship... This is hard to say. Shipshawana, Indiana. Maybe they were visiting someone. (laughs) That's a long way in a horse and buggy. Isn't it? That's true. Yeah. Uh, The Amish couple's from Shipshawana, Indiana, and they were shopping at Walmart and came out to find the horse and buggy missing. Here's my question, Mally, and I'm not saying saying it to be a smart ass or anything, but if you're the Amish and you're inside Walmart, just saying, do you stop at the camera section or do you run by really quickly because you don't want your soul captured? (laughs) I'm just saying. Yeah. We used to go to, um, Derek's mom is big into Amish. Like she worships them. She just thinks they're so darn cute. Mm-hmm. So we used to, every summer we would go, uh, down to this area in Ohio. Not quite sure what city it was, but the only thing that was nearby was a Walmart and they had like a huge area for the Amish. So you see all these horses and buggies. It was very weird, kind of yeah. cool, but strange that they had this separate parking lot part for them. It was very witness-like. <laughs> kind of, yeah. 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 Hmm. I know I just quoted a, what, 30, 40-year-old movie, but hey. That's a good movie. I pro- I bet you, though, I probably wouldn't like it if I watched it again. Yeah, it's one of those movies you don't know if it holds up when you watch it. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, police allege that Lana Latoski, who had been seen at Walmart by an officer earlier that day, rode off into the sunset, leaving the animal spot in the Walmart parking lot empty. A truck driver reported the theft after he saw the Amish couple come outside. He offered them shelter from the frigid cold when he saw that they couldn't find their ride, according to records obtained by the Kalamazoo Gazette and M Live via a Freedom of Information Act request. Well, that was nice of the truck driver, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. A witness saw someone getting in the carriage and found it strange to see a non-Amish person getting in, though he did not think to report it at first. That's a little strange. I would I would think to probably say, hey, 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 you don't look like you belong there. Maybe they thought it was the, what's that called when they had that year of deciding if they want to be Amish or not? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not Yom Kippur, but it's... <laughs> no, it's, no, Mally, no, it's, it's spring, not. Spring, spring, spring something. But yeah, they, were, they can, so maybe they thought that person was deciding whether or not to become Amish. <laughs> they, they were in their... Uh, yeah, they're in their deciding uh, deciding. Yeah, I moments. forget what the word is, though, for it. I don't know either. I'm not quite sure. Uh, the horse's reins were dragging on the ground, and the animal was not cooperating. Oh, that's a big clue right there. <laughs> right. Uh, after reviewing a video police found on Facebook that shows someone driving the horse and buggy through the streets of Sturgis, the horse and buggy were left at an Admiral gas station next to a motel, police said. The, buggies did not, or the buggy did not appear to be damaged, and the horse was un, unharmed. An officer determined a suspect after talking to a witness. Investigating officers determined she was likely in a motel room. 
and entered with permission from a man at the door. I then checked the bathroom of the motel room and noticed that there was a large pile of clothes in the shower, the officer wrote. Through previous experience, I've seen people hide under piles of clothes. At that time, I picked up a pile of clothes and found Lana Latosky under the pile of clothes, said the officer. Hmm. <laughs> was she drunk? You know, I got to think she was, Mel. I, I can't imagine you just hide under a pile of clothes and think you were good. You know? Uh, the 31-year-old Latosky admitted to taking the horse and buggy on a haphazard trot through town after spotting it parked at the Walmart. She said she knocked on, this is a quote from the officer, uh, she said she knocked on one side of the buggy and got no answer and then went to the other side of the buggy and knocked. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, anyone in there? Hello, could I uh, perchance take a, a trot around town? <laughs> hey, at least you didn't have to hotwire it. Hey, that's true. Ooh, how do you hotwire a horse? There's only a couple different openings you uh, reach into. It's just saying. Oh, ew. Uh, she stated that she then got into the buggy and took it home. <laughs> God. <laughs> Uh, she told me that she had instant regret about taking the buggy, but that she was cold and needed to get home. Uber. Uber is a good way to do that. <laughs> exactly. <now>. Yeah. <laughs> Not buggy, but Uber. It's spelled wrong, but there's an app on your phone for that. Or Lyft, if they don't have Uber in town. Right. Lyft or taxi or yeah. <laughs> there's such a thing as a bus company. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Somehow you got there. Yeah. <laughs> Huh? Yeah. If How you, did you think you were going to get back home? If you walked, you could run the other <laughs> way, you know? Right. Uh, the couple's black double buggy is valued at $12,000. Dang. So then what she what is she charged with? Well, the horse is valued at eight. So it's, it's a $20,000 package. Dang. Uh, the officer then wrote, I asked her if she had ever had any training with equestrians. She did not know what equestrian meant. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, if you don't know what equestrian means, don't, right. don't take the reins. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. uh, the woman also said she had no experience with horses, which if she didn't know what equestrian meant, she said, well, I know what equestrian means, but I never rode a horse before. I don't know. She was arrested with and faces charges of larceny of livestock as well as larceny between $1,000 and $20,000. She just made it under the $20,000 barrier there. Well, yeah. Both her felonies, by the way, she could face jail time and fines if convicted. Latoski was arraigned in St. Joseph County District Court and pled not guilty to both counts on January 22nd. How? <laughs> I don't know how I could do not guilty. The horse was outside the motel. Yeah. Hmm. It She's just very smart. It just showed up there on its own. Yeah. <laughs> she was released on a cash surety bond. A larceny charge between thousand and twenty thousand dollars is a felony punishable by imprisonment of up to five years, Mal, or a fine of up to ten thousand dollars or three times the value of the property stolen, whichever is greater. So she could be facing a fine of up to sixty thousand dollars. She's not lucky we're in the 1800s where you would be, I mean, stealing a horse could be death. She'd be whipped at least at the stake. Yeah. Yeah. The larceny of livestock charge carries a possible penalty of up to four years in prison and up to a $5,000 fine. So she's facing that as well. Mm. Interesting stuff. People 
um, I believe it was Kenny Rogers said, don't take your horse and buggy to town. So uh, wasn't that him? <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. I don't think that was him. But Either way, if you're Amish, just walk to the Walmart. There's, there's horse and buggy thieves everywhere. Just saying. All right, Mel. We all have collections. We all have things we collect. We all have things that are valuable. Uh-huh. Um, just be aware, if you sell them in stores, you're going to have a crook that eventually will come in and try and steal it. Okay. In this case, I want to warn my buddies up there at Granite City Comics. Because uh, you two could be... Uh, held up at any time <laughs> okay why are you laughing because <laughs> i just think this is the stupidest crime ever yeah, people don't realize when you hold up a comic book store and take the most valuable comic on the wall you can only resell it for about a third of the value yes so i got a ninety thousand dollar comic now you're lucky if you get 10 for it you know i mean you mm -hmm. didn't yeah you didn't you know. People don't really pay out that much for comics. I mean, you may have, you know, you may have a treasure in your hand, but it kind of turns to shit <laughs> the minute you try to resell it. <laughs> That's the irony of the comics market there, Mel. There's your, gotcha. there's your economics lesson in, in a nutshell. We go to Memphis, Tennessee, where a Midtown comic book store owner apprehended a man who says he was trying to sell stolen merchandise from his business thanks to a tip he got. His police were taking a burglary report. It, it probably helps the, that the owner is a former Memphis police officer. Oh, a police officer oh. who likes comics. There you go. It all started early Friday morning when hooded thieves broke into the 901 Comics. Just two doors down, another business, 901 Toys, was also broken into. Uh, they broke into the or they broke the door window out. As it was, they came and checked the registers, but didn't get anything because we don't keep money in the registers. Said Shannon Merritt. This is probably a good idea. Keep it in the safe or mm -hmm. keep it in the bank. That's an even better idea. Uh, Shannon Merritt, the owner of 901 Comics, 901 Toys, and 901 Games, had that to say. Uh, Shannon also said, I had to come in and I wasn't even supposed to be there that day. He was thankful no merchandise was stolen from the stores, but the story was far from over as he realized he had another problem on his hands. Later that afternoon, I got a call from the other comic book store, Comics and Collectibles, and the employee said, hey, I think someone is trying to sell some of your stolen stuff. So they went to the sister store and tried to sell the merchandise. Yeah, not very smart. Not bright. Uh, the employee even sent over a picture of the man they say was attempting to sell the stolen merchandise, someone Merritt recognized from being in a store before. I was like, well, they didn't take anything last night. It can't be ours, Merritt said. But then Merritt realized their small shipping office in another part of town was broken into as well. He thinks thieves broke in sometime last week, probably just days before the midtown vandalism. Found about $3,000 worth of merchandise stolen, Merritt said. As police were at the shipping office taking a report for the burglary, Merritt spotted the man in the picture from the other comic book store who tried to sell them stolen merchandise. And I saw him and recognized him, and I ran and snatched him up, grabbed him, pulled him back to the police and to the police officer, and I was like, hey, this is the guy that has our stolen stuff, Merritt said. I actually used to be a Memphis police officer for 13 years, so I was pretty comfortable in the situation. And not only that, the cops were right there. So he made his own apprehension. 
Pretty neat. Here's the uh, guy who was not that smart, really. Yeah, he's not looking very smart right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but despite the break-in, Merritt has made it clear with the sign outside his business saying, I assure you we are open. Merritt says he and his fellow owners believe in the city. It is concerning, but we have a great, great community. We pride ourselves on being a community store, and we love, love Memphis. We want to make Memphis a better place, and we can do that by doing what we love and bringing it to Memphis. So there you go. Okay, so Mally, when you go to a fast food restaurant, do you do special orders? Um, not really. I just pick it all off. Okay, so you don't have like any major food allergies or anything like that? No, no. And I don't want to be that pain in the butt person. Okay. So, cause, and I don't want to hold up the line for people behind me. So I just scrape everything off. Once in a while, I'll ask for no onion, like at McDonald's, because that's harder to scrape off. Okay. But other than that. Yeah, I just take it and then deal with it later. <laughs> okay. See, I'm the guy who, you're going to hate this, but I'm the guy who, on occasion, I, I'll order something. And the reason I do this, I'll tell you why I do this. Um, I do this because... Do you I, think it's going to have your food be fresher? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, I know people hate that, but but the fact of the matter is, is... At, at certain re- restaurants, like Mickey D's, <laughs> um, <laughs> you do actually get a fresher burger. Okay. It's not sitting on the warmer. So, as it turns out, though, it backfires on a particular man in this story. Turns out that McDonald's is sued after a Big Mac almost kills a New York man. Now, I know Big Macs are sometimes a little... Grody, but uh, not to Grody. Boy, where did I come up with that word? 1982. That's like, I know. I was going to say, that's the 80s. Yeah. Uh, I but say gag me with a spoon. Yeah. Well, there you go. You could say that too. Uh, I was listening to Valley Girl the other day by, by Moon Unit and Frank Zappa. Um, I just watched that show not too long ago. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> what got you to li- watch that show? Oh, I was changing channels and it, I came upon it. I was like, you know what? I haven't seen this in years. It wasn't a bad show. I mean, you know. For no, it was it was cute, and and Nicholas Cage, he was a cutie back then. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, not, <laughs> not like I was signing up Nicholas Cage, but you know, for that time, sure. Uh, so the franchisee is owned by a polo playing businessman named Bruce Colley, who is accused of breaking up Andrew Cuomo's first marriage. Oh. Interesting thing. Yeah. A New York man is suing McDonald's after a stray slice of American cheese on his Big Mac allegedly sent him into acute anaphylactic shock, which is a life-threatening condition that can turn deadly within minutes. The sandwich had Charles Olson, a 20-something music producer who is severely allergic to dairy products, on the brink of respiratory failure. That, according to his legal team in a lawsuit filed Friday in New York State Supreme Court. We're just so grateful that Mr. Olson is still with us, Olson attorney Jory Lang told the Daily Beast, adding that he and co-counsel Scott Harford are working with several families who have lost loved ones to hidden food allergies. The McDonald's Corporation and the Collie Group, the family business that owns the McDonald's franchise in question, did not respond to requests for comment from the Daily Beast. Both are named as defendants in the suit. The Collie Group's polo-playing COO, Bruce Collie, made headlines two decades ago 
when he was blamed for breaking up future New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo's marriage to Kerry Kennedy Cuomo, the seventh of Robert F. Kennedy's 11 children. He and the closely held company were back in the news a few years later when workers at a Collie McDonald's in Washington Heights walked off the job and demanded air conditioning following the hospitalization of a colleague who fainted in the sweltering kitchen during a heat wave. Oh, he doesn't sound like a good person. No, he sounds like quite the asshole. Uh, The family was once again the subject of intense local interest in 2015 when family matriarch Lois Colley was fatally bludgeoned with a fire extinguisher by a disgruntled employee. Dang. Damn. (laughs) The Colleys are one of the largest private owners of restaurants in the United States, according to an April 2023 press release regarding one of Bruce Colley's overseas development projects. A review of court records shows the Collie Group, which owns hundreds of McDonald's franchises, has faced numerous other lawsuits over incidents that have occurred there. Patrons claim that they have been assaulted by employees, attacked by teenage mobs, racially profiled, and in one instance, pummeled in the face by a crew member during a dispute over the size of his coffee. Yikes. I think I want to skip his McDonald's. (laughs) Yeah, I'm surprised the state hasn't shut him down. You would think. However, few, if any, have been food poisoning cases. So there's that. I don't know. If I had a food allergy, I'd have, I would, I don't know if I would be eating out. You know what I mean? I'd be worried about cross-contamination. You might not put a slab of cheese on my burger, but who's to say that that wasn't like sitting next to a burger? That's that's true. Sitting next to a slice of cheese. That's true. If you have a food allergy, it's tough to eat out these days. Yeah. Because everything gets cross-contaminated. Yep. Olson's claim traces back to the early morning hours of February 21st, 2021, when he and his girlfriend identified in the lawsuit as Alexandra logged into DoorDash. Another bad idea, by the way, if, if, you're, if you have a food allergy. Mm-hmm. Ordering and then getting it through DoorDash because they never go back and get the order right for you. They just deliver it to you one time. Yeah. Uh, They logged into DoorDash and ordered a post-midnight snack from a nearby McDonald's in Manhattan's Chelsea neighborhood. For her, a double quarter pounder with cheese meal and a chocolate milk. Not good if you're mm, lactose intolerant. Olson requested, as usual, a Big Mac meal, no cheese, and a Sprite. When the food arrived... So he's going to have his significant other have cheese if he's got an allergy to cheese. Yeah, that doesn't make sense, does it? No. No. Because I've seen those medical shows where, like, the guy kisses the girl and she had peanut butter, and then all of a sudden he goes into shock and he dies. Yep. Yep. When the food arrived, Olson opened his burger and began to eat, according to the lawsuit. After a few bites, he immediately felt like something wasn't right. It states, his throat began to itch and swell. He felt a burning sensation throughout his body. He looked at his girlfriend, Alexandra, and coughed, there's milk in this. Almost immediately, Olson's entire body was covered in hives. The lawsuit goes on. His breathing became heavy and congested. His whole body felt feverish. He developed a persistent cough, followed by wheezing. He also began gasping for air. He choked out his words to Alexandra that he needed medical help right away. As anaphylaxis set in, Alexandra rushed Olson to the hospital, according to the lawsuit. By this point, he was hypoxic and on the brink of needing intubation to save his life. The suit says all the while his throat was continuing to swell and close. Things got really, really bad, Lang told the Daily Beast. And right when doctors were ready to hook Olson up to a ventilator, the medicine started to kick in and he was 
able to start breathing. After several hours, ER staff were able to stabilize Olson and later released him, according to that lawsuit. Uh, Lang, who specializes in food poisoning cases, said Olson has recovered physically from the terrifying ordeal, but emotionally it was pretty traumatizing. He said, I know it was a really scary event for him, and those emotional scars, unfortunately, are lasting. My thing is, never go back to McDonald's. Uh-uh. Did he not have an EpiPen? You know, that's a good question, Mal. Um, let me see here. Does it say if he had one? It doesn't... Because, I mean, I feel like dairy is in everything. Yeah, almost everything. Um, yeah. It doesn't say. It just says that he's asking for damages in an amount to be determined by a jury plus legal fees, so he didn't name an amount in hmm. this deal. I would think that that would come up during trial. <clears throat> Did he not have right. an EpiPen available? Uh, in Lang's experience, he said some restaurant chains are willing to meet him halfway in situations like this and do what they can to make it right. Others, according to Lang, will just fight and fight and fight. So it sounds like it's happened before. Yes. You know, it's it's tough. You know, when, when you're running a, a fast food restaurant, you're looking for help that will work for the lowest available scale. Yeah. And you're working at a fast pace because it's fast food and mistakes happen. Right. That's just what happens. And if you have a food allergy, those aren't the restaurants I would think that you go to because you're ta it's gambling it's essentially gambling yeah you know it the chances that something's going to happen are great because even when you order it yourself at the little kiosk you know how now they have those screens that you do it yourself in mcdonald's mm -hmm. you know you still gotta hope that the person making it does it correctly right and you right. never look until you either get home sometimes i'll check in my car but Right. That's a lot of effort. That is, yeah. <laughs> I'd rather just get home and then be like, son of a biscuit. <laughs> well, and you issue a lot of trust, too, to, to people who prepare your food. You, you, you yeah. want to think that they care just as much as you do. But you never know. Maybe someone's had a bad day or something's going on in their life. They're not thinking. And, yeah. you know, they, they throw cheese on something that wasn't supposed to have cheese on it because that's the way they normally make the meal. Yeah. You know, and it just so happens that that happens to be the time it's deadly. You know, uh, let's move on. A Marietta man is accused of shooting 127 rounds at ninja like people. Mal, I can't tell you how many times I've just been sitting in the front yard and ninja like people come up to the house and by gosh, I just grab my gun and fire off 127 rounds. Jesus. <laughs> Sounds like this guy was high on something. Ah, uh, ding, 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 ding. Oh, did I get it right? <laughs> yep. 37 year old Richard Ray West of Marietta, Georgia, is accused of shooting approximately 127 rounds from a 40 caliber handgun. That thing goes boom really loud. <laughs> well, under the assumption that ninja-like people were after him on January 18th between midnight and 9.28 a.m., the incident occurred in and around the property of J&R Cycle Shop on Canton Road in Marietta near the intersection of Dickerson Road and Canton Road Northeast, Boy, oh boy. During the incident, West destroyed a mini fridge, a microwave, a metal desk, television, a space heater, and two computer towers. <laughs> My guess is he wasn't a good shot. Uh, belonging to Robert Scavoni, who is the owner of JR Cycle Shop. The shop is located in the building owned by Smart LLC. Wasn't smart of him to fire off that many shots, was it? 
And uh, a lot of the items were metal. Wouldn't that ricochet? Um, well, the mini fridge and the microwave, I think, could take it, Mel. The metal desk <laughs> might deflect. We all know El- Elvis shot a lot of televisions, and it never <laughs> came back on him. The space heater probably took it pretty well. The two computer towers, I think, would probably absorb it as well. I'm just saying, theoretically, I've not shot all this shit up, but (laughs) I'm just saying. You you sound like you've shot things from experience. (laughs) No, I don't know. I'm just saying, I'm, you know, I I haven't done impact tests on all this stuff. (laughs) You know, maybe there might be some ricochet off harder metal parts, but I would think most of this, (laughs) most of this stuff would pretty much absorb the impact. Uh, So... The shop is located uh, in that building. West shot through the glass front door and glass storefront. That could hurt. Uh, tore down a portion of the ceiling panel and insulation. Shot through multiple locations on the walls and the metal garage door. That could bounce back. And broke a wooden bathroom door off its hinges and into pieces. Somebody's raging on something big. Yeah. Following the shooting, West stole a blue 1987 Honda 700 Magnum motorcycle from inside the shop. Because who doesn't want to drive around after shooting things up, right? Yeah. You got to get some of the adrenaline off. West is charged with two counts of criminal damage, second degree theft by taking greater than $1,500, possession of a firearm during the commission of a theft from building or of a vehicle, and reckless conduct. He was arrested on January 18th at 6.31 p.m., pretty early in the uh, evening to be shooting things up, and booked into the Cobb County Adult Detention Center, according to jail records. West remains in custody without bond, probably because he shot up way too many things. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Uh, let's see here. Let's move on. This guy made a lot of news. In fact, a few of you sent me this story this week. And thank you to everybody who sent me stories this week. I appreciate it. This guy is a conspiracy kook who decapitated his father and used YouTube to display his father's head. I saw that story. Yeah. We go to Pennsylvania, Mally. Were the Pennsylvania lunatic, and no, it's not his wrestling name, <laughs> uh, was charged with decapitating his father with a machete and then displaying the severed head during a YouTube video and declaring that such violence was the only solution to the federal government's treason. Ugh. You can hear the bells and whistles in the background as he says that. 32-year-old Justin Moan was named in a criminal complaint charging him with murdering his 68-year-old father, Michael, in the Bucks County home they shared. A bloody and gruesome probable cause affidavit describes a crime scene and the placement of the victim's head inside a cooking pot. You heard that right. Moan's mother called 911 yesterday to report finding her husband's headless corpse. In a video uploaded after the killing, Moan described his father as a veteran federal employee who was a traitor... That's in quotes, deserving of death. Moan also ranted about woke mobs, migrants, the Biden regime, and globalists. I don't think your father was part of that. No, poor guy. The The dad, not the guy. Yeah, not the guy. (laughs) The murderer. Yeah. The 14-minute and 35-second video was titled Moan's, M-O-H-N's, Militia, Call to Arms for American Patriots. At one point in the clip, Moan's pick up, or Moan picks up his father's head and declares, he is now in hell for eternity. My God. 
sounds like he had some type of episode, like a manic kind of. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Schizophrenia? I don't know. Yep. The complaint charges Moan with homicide, weapons, possession, and desecrating a corpse in an unsuccessful lawsuit he filed in 2022 against the Federal Department of Education. Moan claimed that he was fraudulently induced to borrow money for or to pay for his Pennsylvania State University education. Moan contended that he was unable to secure a job because he was viewed as an overeducated white male, adding that he was victimized by affirmative action policies. Mm. Yikes. Moan is pictured in a Facebook photo. You can't see because I'm looking at it, but I'm going to show Mally shortly. <laughs> which has since been deleted. He is holding a CD carrying his name and the title, The Story of Humanity. This guy is... I'll let you judge for yourself, Mally. First impressions. He couldn't get a date to save his life. (laughs) There's that. He just has stranger danger all over him, doesn't he? Yeah. You know who he reminded me of when I first heard the story and I was reading it? Who's that? He reminded me of the Brian guy from the the um idaho murders yes yeah he looks a lot like him just that clean cut but creepy like there's something off with them yep yeah yeah he definitely uh all cylinders aren't running on the engine mm-hmm. yeah that's for sure yeah he is not all there uh we continue on mally the only way to smuggle your marijuana is to take it on a cruise evidently Okay. Although, I'll warn you, it's probably the easiest way to get caught. Sorry, folks. Uh, That's why you're on dumb crime, stupid criminals. A pair of cruise passengers were arrested after authorities searched their luggage and found 112 bags of marijuana. (laughs) Good God. Two people on a Norwegian cruise line ship were found with 112 bags of marijuana, according to an affidavit. One said that she met the other at the ship's bar and both had 56 bags of peas. Oh, jeez. It was love at first sight, Mally. Apparently. Uh, both have pleaded not guilty to four criminal charges of drug trafficking. If you get caught with 56 bags of weed, is that a not guilty plea? <laughs> Dear God, two passengers on a cruise from Miami to the UK were found to be carrying over 100 bags of weed, according to the Department of Homeland Security. Michael Quisenberry and Savannah Rose Menami, I believe is the name, were set to travel on the Norwegian Joy. And there's a whole lot of joy going on. Yeah, apparently. Up, right? On January 11th, when law enforcement boarded the vessel, the pair were found in a cabin where Quisenberry had two suitcases, a carry-on bag, and a backpack, the affidavit said. It added that Minami uh, was allowed to leave the room at first, as she said she'd just met Quisenberry at the ship's bar. Later, a drug-sniffing dog issued a positive signal for Quisenberry's luggage, where officers found 56 vacuum-sealed bags containing a green leafy substance. The substance was tested and confirmed to be marijuana. The court document said Quisenberry... Claimed the drugs were for personal use, and he had a medical marijuana card. By the way, folks, that doesn't fly on cruises. No. No. I think we have a problem, too, with uh, people going over to Canada. They think that their medical, you know, their marijuana medical card is okay for, you know, going to another country. Uh, No. No. Doesn't work that way either. After the luggage search, law enforcement located Manami at the ship's bar and escorted her to her home, or her room, rather. 
where another 56 bags were found. <laughs> Whoops. It added that her luggage also consisted of two suitcases, a carry-on bag, and a backpack. The seized packages weighed 71.9 kilograms, or about 158 pounds, Mally. Jeez. That's a lot of weed. Based on my training and experience, drug traffickers are increasingly turning to exportation of marijuana from the United States to England due to the higher price of marijuana in England, said a Department of Homeland Security special agent in his affidavit. Quisenberry and Manami have pleaded not guilty to four charges involving drug trafficking. They released on bonds of $250,000 and $150,000 respectively and surrendered their passports. If found guilty on all counts, they would each face up to 80 years in prison and $4 million in fines. Wow. That's a lot of time. When I was in Amsterdam waiting in line, they had the drug sniffing dogs. And there was a couple, probably like a few people ahead of me that got pulled aside. And then there was a guy behind me that got pulled aside. And I remember I was sweating going, oh, my God, oh, my God. (laughs) Even though I knew I didn't have drugs. I was worried that maybe the dog would come over to me thinking, okay, maybe someone like snuck something in and I didn't see it or whatever. Cause I always think worst case scenario, it's like when you got to take a pee test for work (laughs) and you're like, Oh my God, Oh my God. You know, and you know that you don't do drugs, but what if it, you know, poppy seeds or I don't know, like something, something just positive. But I was so scared at Amsterdam. (laughs) I was like, ah, (laughs) maybe someone has a shirt with BO that smells a lot like weed and it rubbed off on my bag. And I know I just, my mind just, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know. Whenever there's a dog around, why is it we all get nervous? Like uh, I know, like we're guilty. Yeah, like it might sniff my bag. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I did. I just where I was stressed out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. Well, it's time now for the not safe for work portion of our program. If you're at work, it's time now to put in your earbuds or turn down your listening device so the people around you or your boss can't hear. If you've got kids in the room, I don't know why you're listening to this program with kids in the room, but I don't know, issue the little ones outside or have that quick sex talk with them because we're about to get down and dirty. Um, But here we go. We'll do it in three, two, one. This one is just plain creepy, Mally. Um, Okay. Although I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard a line like this from a guy at one time or another, (laughs) and probably from Iowa. Okay. We're going to Iowa, where a college administrator is nabbed for enticing a minor. I know this is kind of an uncomfortable story. (sighs) This phrase is very uncomfortable, too. The 66-year-old man sent an obscene image and wrote, His name is Vaney. Ew. Um... I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Vainy. Believing that he was communicating with a young girl, the University of Iowa administrator allegedly sought to entice the minor into a sexual relationship, sent her dozen of obscene images and videos, and even forwarded a photo of the, you know, Mr. Vainy, noting that his name is Vainy. That's a quote. Who says that? I think I would have... Well, I'm surprised he didn't say, like, his name is Harry or something rather than Vaney. Right. Who says that and thinks, oh, she's going to get off on this. His name is Vaney. V-E-I-N-Y, Vaney. That grosses me out. I wonder if that's its nickname for, like, his wife. 
Veiny? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you call her Veiny? Well, because we take her to the blood bank once a month and make money off her. <laughs> <laughs> Why Veiny? Yeah. Did he meet somebody at one time who thought that was a kink? That's why I'm saying maybe his wife calls it Mr. Vaney. Oh, but that can't be a, that can't be a compliment. I don't know. People are weird. Oh, 66-year-old Mark Sevchik has been charged with multiple criminal counts related to contacts via several social media platforms. So the person he believed to be a female under the age of 16, but surprise, Ooh. guess who it was? Oh, was it like the, oh, what is that? Not Dateline. What is that one yeah, where the, the guys date. like wait for when they enter yeah. the house? Yeah. Chris Hansen. Yeah. Yeah. Went up being a perv himself. Yeah. Oh, really? I think so. Yeah. Oh. Uh, court filings do not indicate whether Sevchik was communicating with an actual child or was snared in an undercover operation. I'm going to show you a picture of Mr. Vaney. Tell me he doesn't look like he's okay. Mr. Vaney. <laughs> I'm glad you're showing a picture of him and not the actual Mr. Vaney. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm not showing you <laughs> Mr. Vaney. Like, Timmy, I know we're no. friends, but come on. No, no, I'm not showing you Mr. Vaney. I'm showing you Mr. <laughs> Vaney, but not Mr. Vaney. Um, I mean, doesn't doesn't he look yeah. like a Mr. Vaney? Yeah. Doesn't he kind of look like the preacher from, from Poltergeist? A little bit. Yeah. He looks like the creepy, like, gym teacher that watches you undress from, like, up above. Yes, yeah. You know how they used to have those offices up there? Yeah. With the big window? Yeah, he does. Yeah. And Mr. Vaney. Uh, Subcheck is employed by the University of Iowa's athletic department, where he's an a assistant director and IT department supervisor. That kind of figures, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. During a four-month period ending last month, Sevchik sent dozens of pornographic images and videos and told the other person that he wanted to perform sex acts with her. At one point, he forwarded a photo of Mr. Vaney. Sounds like a character on South Park. It does. <laughs> I'm Mr. Vaney. I'm Mr. Vaney. Look at me. I'm like a road map. You can follow me up and down. Don't get me mad. <laughs> I might spit at you. <laughs> uh, he forwarded a photo of Mr. Vaney telling the female it was his, you know, the P word, the one I hate saying. Schlong. Uh, yes, yeah, schlong, that's right. <laughs> it was his uh, Wiener schnitzel. And his name is Vaney. <coughs> his name is Mr. Vaney. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to say it like that. I'm telling you. His name is Mr. Vaney. And boy, is he stringy. Ew. <laughs> uh oh. Uh, okay. Sebchek, uh, Iowa City Police Department cops say, encouraged deletion of all communication and bought female underwear for the other person. Because it didn't well, fit him. he comes with gifts. <laughs> That's right. He came with gifts. <laughs> <laughs> During the recent execution of a search warrant, investigators recovered the underwear in a vehicle belonging to Sevchik, along with condoms and personal lubricant, probably for Mr. Vaney. <laughs> Guess what? I come with a raincoat. Sevchik, who lives with his wife in Cedar Rapids, <laughs> probably oh, not for long. lady. Yeah. Was booked into jail for enticing a minor, a felony, and three misdemeanor counts of disseminating obscene material to a minor. If convicted of the charges, 
Mr. Vaney could face more than 10 years in prison. Mm. Or Mr. Vaney will probably... He's seen a lot of stuff. That's right. We'll probably be servicing others. Yes. I'm sure. Uh, we continue. A Snapchat scam turns deadly when a Bartlesville woman shoots an intruder in a home invasion error. I know you're saying, what's so not safe for work about this? Well, right. well, Mally, it gets a little scandalous. A 23-year-old Bartlesville man was fatally shot January 12th when breaking down the back door of an apartment after sending money over Snapchat for the promise of sex. Oh. Yeah. The only problem was that the person on Snapchat was a scammer from another country, and the would-be intruder went to the wrong address, according to Bartlesville police. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, Washington County District Attorney Will Drake told the EE he had deemed the shooting justified while noting the case's unusual aspects. According to police documents, a 25-year-old woman who officials only identify as AT was working on her laptop the morning of January 12th when she heard a loud knocking on her door. The knocking then turned into banging. AT told police she had warned the person banging on the door that she was armed and would shoot them if they entered her apartment. Shortly after that, the door gave way, and A.T. fired a single round into the body of James Allen. After first responders arrived, Allen was taken to Ascension St. John Jane Phillips Medical Center, try saying that ten times fast, uh, where he was pronounced dead. In a statement, Washington County District Attorney Will Drake described the scene as harrowing. Door is off hinges, a broken door chain is located embedded into the door, broken chain locks are found inside the apartment, Wood splinters from the door are found in the kitchen and dining room area, he wrote. Drake said he ruled the shooting justified based on an Oklahoma statute that gives citizens of Oklahoma an absolute right to expect safety within their homes. When applying the laws of Oklahoma to the evidence from the investigation, it is clear the actions of AT are a justifiable use of deadly force. AT was faced with a person beating aggressively on the door to her residence. She gave warning to the individual, which is not required by law, Drake wrote. AT then observed an adult male break through her residence door with enough force as to take the door off the hinges. A person whom AT had not shown and had no right to be present in her home A.T. then shot Allen, resulting in his death under the laws of Oklahoma. A.T. was justified in her actions. Now, a search of Allen's phones, or phone rather, would help investigators put the pieces together. The young man had sent money on a, or to a Snapchat user with the name of Lori20. That's with two Y's and an E who in turn gave him a Bartlesville address where they could supposedly meet up for sex. <clears throat> That's where the misunderstanding begins. Those messages revealed that Allen arrived at the wrong address. Police visited the correct address and were unable to locate anyone connected to the Lori20 username. After a search warrant with Snapchat, police learned that Lori20 had contacted multiple other users with the same promise in exchange for money leading Bartlesville police to believe that the Snapchat user was a scammer from a foreign country. Bartlesville police say there's no evidence to suggest that Allen knew or ever communicated with the woman who shot him. So beware, folks. All right, if that's scary. Yeah, if you're promised sex for money on Snapchat, it's probably not true. But he also seemed kind of forceful, too, so no telling. Yeah. You know, if he's banging on the door and... <clears throat> 
<clears throat> you know, tearing it down and stuff. I mean, it sounds like he was a violent guy. Well, what probably happened there is he he was probably promised it, and he said he was coming over, and and she probably tried to whoever Lori Twenty was probably said, "Well, I'm not going to be around," and he said, "Well, I'm coming over anyways." But did this the scammer did he keep or he or she keep using that girl's address because that would really suck. I think so. Yeah, you know if <clears throat> if they're if that person's contacting other people in that town. Right. Right. I don't know. It's a That's good, scary. Good question. Let's move on. This passenger put the EU in Uber. Get ready for this oh. one, Nelly. A 46-year-old nurse, according to cops, pleasured self while seated next to the driver. Oh. Creepy. While taking an Uber home to his $655,000 townhouse, a Florida man exposed his genitals and pleasured himself to completion, forcing the driver to clean up the mess left behind by his front seat passenger seat. Ew. Why is the guy in the front seat anyway? I don't know. Let me show you this guy. This is this guy owns a $655,000 townhouse. Well, yeah, I guess he's a doctor. Oh, Jesus. Oh, I, I wish I, I want to become a doctor. <laughs> Not so I can, you know, <laughs> jerk off to a Uber driver. I would have been like, okay, if the ride stops here, out. That's and right. Instead of yeah. taking him all the way to his house. That's right. Because <laughs> you know the Uber driver's like, is there an extra tip here? Should I, get it? I mean, I see the extra tip, if you know what I mean. But yeah, yeah. is there an extra tip here? Because if, if so, I'm going to keep driving. If not, uh, we're going to stop here. Uh, according to court records, the driver picked up 46-year-old Jason Haggerty around 8.45 p.m. Saturday in Tampa and drove him to St. Petersburg where Haggerty owns a residence with his husband. While en route, Haggerty displayed and exposed his, you know, Mr. Vaney and proceeded to... Schlong. Schlong. <laughs> Mally likes that word. I do. And proceeded to masturbate the duration of the ride until arriving home. He can last. Mm. I mean, Tampa to St. Pete isn't a long distance. <laughs> but still. The driver told cops he speaks no English... And oh, was no English <laughs> <laughs> uh, put back in the pants, uh, <laughs> uh, and was unable to tell the defendant to stop. Though he did use his phone to record the defendant masturbating. I don't know, so he can make a profit later, right? Right. Uh, the driver said that Haggerty ejaculated inside the vehicle. In order to continue working, the driver had to personally clean the seminal fluid from his own vehicle. Oh, God, that's disgusting. How would you like to be the next guy to ride in that vehicle, though? I'm just saying. Uh, you like, why is the seat sticky? You. <laughs> Do you think that... What is that called? Is that voyeurism when you have sex out in public? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's voyeurism if you're watching. It's oh, participationism gotcha. if you... Why? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, an arrest affidavit noted that there was a third unknown person in the vehicle's backseat, that's the voyeur right there, who spoke up for the victim at the conclusion of the ride. Police believe alcohol played a role in the incident, you think? Uh, Haggerty, a licensed nurse practitioner, was arrested yesterday for the exposure of sexual organs, a misdemeanor, and booked into the county jail during a court hearing uh, a judge ordered Haggerty released from custody on his own recognizance. There was no fine. Oh, that's strange. 
The judge directed Haggerty to have no contact with the driver. <laughs> a little too late for that. <laughs> Additionally, the judge ruled that the defendant shall not use Uber, Lyft, rideshare, or any assisted means of transportation while case is pending. Yeah. Just a couple more stories left here on the not safe for work version of dumb crime, stupid criminals. We're going to get really disgusting and then work our way down to just disgusting. Okay. <laughs> We're going in descending order today, Mally. Gotcha. In this one, a naked woman is in a convenience store rampage. The perp was pleasuring herself in a racetrack store in Florida. <laughs> this is Florida woman this time, Mal. A naked woman was wielding a sharp-edged vegetable peeler and threatening convenience store workers, destroyed a Red Bull display, and masturbated in front of sheriff's deputies before being taken into custody on a variety of criminal charges. So did they let her finish? That's a good question. <laughs> Let's find out. My thing is, this is a dangerous act. This is almost like a circus juggling act. Vegetable peeler masturbation. You mix up the hands and boy, have we got a bloody mess. Uh. Yeah. Investigators allege that 35-year-old Celia Barrett caused a drunken disturbance Sunday evening at a racetrack in St. Petersburg, Florida. Upon arriving, Sands closed at the store, which is always a good way to show up at the store. Uh, Barrett began veiling, or I'm sorry, began yelling or veiling one or the other about being trespassed from the business the prior day. So, of course, show up naked because that, you know, that's a good way right. to argue your point. On Saturday, police warned Barrett that she, sh she would be subject to arrest if she returned to racetrack. So, again, show up naked and start yelling. As detailed in a series of criminal complaints after Barrett, peeler in hand, showed up at the store around 6.40 p.m., threatened two workers, one of whom police or told police that Barrett said she would kill him with a vegetable peeler. Mm. What was she going to do, peel his skin off? Mm. She didn't think this out. No. Barrett proceeded to topple and break a display of Red Bull energy drinks and spill cigarettes from a carton she tore open. Because before you kill somebody, you're going to want to get energied up and have a good cigarette. When officers arrived at the racetrack, Barrett was still inside and still naked, by the way. Prior, to, <laughs> She didn't clothe up or anything. Uh, prior to be ta being taken into custody, Barrett began masturbating in front of deputies because she wanted to show her appreciation for somebody paying attention to her. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Barrett reportedly admitted to being intoxicated, you think? <laughs> and said she had consumed approximately six shots of liquor. I'm going to show you a picture of Barrett here before we continue on, Mel. Hopefully they put some clothes on her before I took the photo. Oh, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Do you stay for the show or do you leave? <sighs> Ick. <laughs> you don't stay for the show, Mally? No. no. I'm good. You're good? Yeah, I think <laughs> Thank I you. am too. I'll just point out that Celia Barrett has a seven head. <laughs> has a what? She has a seven head. Seven head? She's a seven head. She skipped the forehead and went right back to five, six, and seven head. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm just saying. I've never heard that before. Never heard that before? No, I've just heard of a high forehead, but not a yeah. skip the. 
four yeah, with she the skipped five, six, a, skipped <laughs> a four head and went straight to five, six, and seven head. <laughs> Charged with aggravated assault, disorderly conduct, trespass, criminal mischief, and exposure of sexual organs, Barrett is being held in the county jail. Her extensive rap sheet includes convictions for battery, prostitution, criminal mischief, narcotics possession, and, of course, failure to wear a hat in a racetrack. Stop. <laughs> I had to get one in. That's what she said with the vegetable peeler. <laughs> Ew. All right. And finally. <laughs> Move on. On Dumb Crime Stupid Criminals today. As long as we're going naked, let's go tit for tat here, so to speak. If it's what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Oh, Sheila. We'll talk about completely naked Florida man. Who happened to barge into a church thrift shop and steal a T-shirt. See, I told while you. While naked? Yeah, while naked. I told you we were going from extreme to less extreme. Okay. By the way, here's the uh, here's the guy in said t-shirt. He went work from work on the bit. Ugh. <laughs> he is very hairy. He is very hairy. He's very simian, uh, which I think helped his cause. We go to Ocala, Florida. A Florida man was found, or has found himself rather, behind bars after he allegedly dashed into a church thrift store while naked and stole a t-shirt. I think he'd steal some pants. He, maybe he didn't have time. <laughs> or maybe that's the best part of him, Allie. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you got to show off the schlong if it's something to look at, you know. Or maybe that was the least hairiest thing on him. <laughs> Or maybe the most hairiest thing on him, and it was covering up the package. Mm. I don't know. 38-year-old Michael DaCosta, not the reporter from The Daily Show. I should point that out. <laughs> yeah. Was arrested and charged with retail theft and indecent exposure after the incident that unfolded at Wings of Faith Thrift Store in Ocala. Last Wednesday, according to an arrest affidavit from the Marion County Sheriff's Office, according to the thrift store's website, the ministry offers low prices and donations to needy people and profits are used to assist various mission projects. That's a good good cause, right? Mm-hmm. Deputies responded to the church thrift store after several people flagged law enforcement down to report that there was a naked man running around everywhere. <laughs> Witnesses said he was wearing glasses and had a pair of blue shorts with him. Oh, so he was ready to cover up. Gotcha. He just didn't have them on. Right. And deputies were able to find a man identified as DaCosta, who matched this description about a mile away from the store. DaCosta uh, told deputies that he ran away from somewhere naked and went to the thrift store to gather some clothes. The affidavit said he allegedly entered the store fully nude and a clerk at the thrift shop gave him a pair of shorts and told him to leave. But he wound up stealing a T-shirt on his way out, still completely naked. Well, he had to have a matching set. Right. Yeah. DaCosta made no effort to cover his genitalia while in the store and was acting erratic. You put an O in that erratic and he was acting erotic, Mally. You see oh, what I did there? Jesus. Yeah. The clerk told deputies, adding that he or she wished to pursue criminal charges for the exposure of sexual organs. The store manager also wanted criminal charges for the retail theft of the T-shirt, which was valued at five bucks. Why don't you just let it slide at that point? I mean, if, yeah. he, if he gave him the shorts, why bother with the T-shirt? I mean, you know, 
like the t-shirt was what put you over in that point that point uh you know i mean god says to love and give out free clothing to the naked doesn't he <laughs> where does he say that that's somewhere in the bible i'm sure oh okay yeah <laughs> i don't know i'm just making shit up now That'll do it for Dumb Crime Stupid Criminals today because God says for me to get out of here and go give clothing to the naked. It's, it's freezing outside. It's, it's winter. Needed. Yeah, it's winter in Minnesota, even though it's 50 degrees outside. Um, Mally, which guy going on? Oh, my goodness. After we get off. Wow, that sounds weird. <laughs> after we, we end the show. <laughs> <laughs> Too much dumb crime, stupid criminal for you today. Yeah. In my brain. Yeah. Um, I have to read a freaking handbook that's the size of a Bible. Ah. Well, maybe it'll say clothe the naked. And... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, because like I told you before, I'm now on the cultural and historical commission for my town. Oh, yeah. And they gave me this handbook a month ago, and I got a meeting this week, and I haven't opened it up yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. You should probably do that. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to be doing for the next couple of days. All right. Uh, I know. So eventful. Well, it, it is. It is. You'll be able to tell us cultural things by the time you're done. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I can't tell the difference between Yom, K- Yom Kippur and the <laughs> the thing for the Amish. And how, the how the Amish become Amish. Yeah. So they should love you down at the historical society. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm real cultural. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I'll just tell them about Mr. Vaney and maybe. That's right. <laughs> distracted me, for a while. Let me tell you about the Historical Society of Iowa and Mr. Vaney. <laughs> um, I'm sure they'll love that story. And then do yeah. the voice, too. Yeah. Hi, yeah. Oh, Mr. Vaney. Uh, next month, if I if, if I do the show with you, be like, so what you got going on? Well, funny you should say that. I got kicked off of the commission <laughs> because I said, "Want to see my roadmap?" Yeah. Um, yeah, and they were like, "No, no, we uh, want you to leave." Uh, all right. Well, I got KNSI Radio this weekend. Uh, tune in Saturday to hear all things news, sports, weather, and all that other stuff. So that'll do it for today. Uh, tune in tomorrow for Supernatural News. And then we got a special news. surprise news, and then uh, Thursday we got a special surprise as well. So, Ooh, I like surprises. Yeah. So that's coming up this week on the big program. Thanks so much to Alan Warren for uh, being on the big program today. Uh, his book is available in the link in this description. So uh, be sure to click on that link and get the book involving Bruce McCullough and the uh, Toronto Gay Murders. So there you go. For Mally Fox, I'm Tim Dennis. Thank you so much for tuning in to True Crime Tuesday. We'll see you tomorrow for Darkness Radio. Right